0: You will notice to my left on the board, the very first goal that we have that our elders placed before us a month ago was rising above self-isolation. Over the past year, really, we've been talking about self-isolation. We've been talking about it in the context of the pandemic and quarantining at home and being away from people because of the coronavirus and everything else that's going on, I think we understand what self-isolation is and quarantine, and this is kind of like preaching to the proverbial choir here. You all probably don't have a problem with self-isolation right now. If you're in the room with me, you're probably here, I think. <laughs> you're not isolated at home, and so maybe you might view that top goal as not my problem. I want to broaden that out, and this isn't coming from the elders, this is just coming from me. Maybe an encouragement, a thought for you to take throughout the week today. Do you have a problem with self-isolation? Maybe not in terms of the pandemic, but maybe in terms of your evangelism and your influence over the world? Because it's been a problem for a very, very long time. The churches tendency sometimes to self-isolate from the world, to put a certain level of social distance between us and members of the community that we live in who need us so desperately. There is a real tendency to huddle up within these four walls, we're sort of protected, we're in the bubble, so to speak, and maybe we're afraid to go out and to talk to people. It's not a new problem. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 beginning in verse 19. The disciples after Jesus died were greatly afraid of the Jews and it says in John 20 verse 19 on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, "'Peace be with you.'" And he had showed his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad and they saw when they saw the Lord. Now stop right there. The disciples are afraid, and where are they? They're isolated in their home. They're, they're shut up, they're, they're quarantined, so to speak, because they are so deathly afraid of the Jews. And wouldn't they be? I mean, I, I, I'm not faulting them for this at all, really. Their master, their teacher, had just died. And it was the very same reason why I think Peter denied Jesus three times. He was very concerned about being seen to be associated with Jesus out of fear. But what does Jesus do when he comes into their midst? He shows them... His hands, he shows them his side. And what is the the first thing he says? Peace be with you. And then he follows that up in his next words in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what is he telling them? Rise above self-isolation. That's what Jesus is saying in a sense. You get out of this house, and you go out into the world. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And in the Great Commission, we all understand what Jesus is talking about there. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all nations. And Jesus is telling them to go, not to be isolated, not to be afraid. But while we sometimes have a tendency toward that, maybe you're very good at evangelism, so you can not listen to this lesson if, if you choose. But if, if, if you struggle with knowing how to handle your faith and making the connection from your heart to your mouth in the world, if you struggle to know how to talk to a culture who is so against the faith, then hopefully this lesson will be helpful for you. There's some things for us to think about this morning, because... The culture in which we live is incredibly hostile toward the Lord's people, increasingly so. Our neighbors and our co-workers in the LGBTQ community, they are hostile toward us. There is a pervasive cancel culture going on right now in which, if you are found to have said something offensive to somebody, you very well could be on the list for people not to associate with you. There are people in our culture who have very strong views about women's right to choose an abortion, who they are allowed to love, who they are allowed to marry, who they are allowed to divorce. And this is not a new problem. I don't wanna stand up here and say that we are experiencing something so far above what anyone else has experienced. I think you can look back even to Jesus' time and find some very, very heinous sins that are going on in, that, in his culture. Jesus had to deal with that, the apostles had to deal with that, and you and I have to deal with that today. And so how do we deal with a culture that is so against the faith? What I want to propose this morning is that we need to become bilingual believers, bilingual believers, where we are fluent not only in the language of the kingdom, but we are also fluent in the language of culture we are able not only to speak within these four walls in a way that we all understand, but when we go out into the world, people can understand our message as well. That they don't view us as backward and ignorant and unloving, uncaring people, that we are able to go out into the world, bring the gospel to them in a way that they are able to hear. And that's even more challenging today than maybe it has been in the past. So I wanna talk about that this morning, really encouraging us to understand how we relate to culture, how we relate to people in the world, people who have very different views from us, people who desperately need us, like the world needed the disciples here in Jesus' day to go out, to be sent out into the world. So let's start with our first point this morning, and we're going to go through the ABCs, and I'll add in a D there, too. And all of our points here are going to follow the alphabet just a little bit, maybe help you remember these things a bit easier. But we, we have alien associations in our lives. As Christians, when we go out into the world, we are almost like aliens. I guess in the, in the space context, people may view us in that sort of strange, otherworldly kind of way. But in that context of a a stranger, a pilgrim, a foreigner, we speak very differently than the world. We view things very differently than the world. We have a different moral standard. We have a different compass by which we are guided in our lives. And so when we go out into the world, we have a, a lot of different challenges to overcome and some of that language barrier we need to understand how to address And it is so important that we start with Jesus. Absolutely fundamental to our understanding of how to relate to the world is how we relate to Jesus and how we follow his example. You can't study about Jesus for very long and not see that people viewed him both too religious and also too worldly. Jesus was a very polarizing figure in his time. You can't Read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 without seeing his views as very extreme. Just a thought in your your mind about that woman over there, that man over there, a lustful thought that lingers on too long. That thought is adultery. That hateful attitude that you have towards someone. You might as well have murdered them. If somebody demands something from you, give it to them. If somebody asks you to go one mile, you go with them too. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, present them with your other one. That is extreme. And in so much of Jesus' teaching, as he would talk about eating his his flesh and drinking his blood, that was too much for some people. You go to his teachings on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in Matthew chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. And even his own disciples said, It's better for us not even to get married than to have to follow this strict religious and moral standard that you're setting out for us. And Jesus basically said, you got it. (laughs) You understand the point. So many people view Jesus as, as too religious. But then you go to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And how did they view him? He was a Sabbath breaker. He was a blasphemer. And in fact, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. On the other hand, Jesus, by the the religious leader's viewpoint, was far too worldly. And so there in the balance of those two things, that's where Jesus was. Jesus did not allow his pendulum to swing from one extreme to another. He found that perfect balance where we need to find today. We need to take a stand where God tells us to take a stand, absolutely, And, and I hope Nobody will walk away from this lesson saying, Brian is very uh, shaky about the fundamentals of what we should believe. I am absolutely not. If you want me to preach a lesson all about why same-sex marriage is wrong today, I won't because that's the lesson that Sean's going to preach in a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) We absolutely believe certain things and hold them true because God tells us they're true. Amen? Amen. On the other hand, we don't allow our strong beliefs to keep us from going out into the world. Amen? It's a lot quieter. We need to be associating with people who need us. We have a great physician and we follow his example. You are the the nurses and physician's assistant of the great physician and we go out into the world and help those people who are sick and who need us. We heal people even on the Sabbath. We do the things that we need to do for the community and if that means that people view us as too worldly or too religious, then so be it. You can't please all the people all the time and we understand that, we don't take our self-evaluation from what other people think of us. We take our evaluation from what Jesus thinks of us. And so, all of our interactions in this world are very alien to the world, but we need to be fluent in both languages. Jesus tells his disciple very frequently. In fact, in John chapter 15, in his prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus talks about how the world will hate you. Absolutely, the world will hate you. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be shocked by it. It's going to happen. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. You're not of the world. You live in the world. I can't take you out of the world. We don't get to have a a commune somewhere in Sedona, you know, totally disconnected from everyone. That's, That's not who we are. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. And I think the Apostle Paul really talks about this perfectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to read with me there. 1 Corinthians 9, and I know this is probably the place where you'd expect us to go, but I think Paul sums up our relationship with the world very well when he talks about his own ministry, his own evangelism. He says, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Some, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul's approach there is exactly what we're talking about here. Paul didn't change the message. Paul didn't water down the gospel. But what Paul did was he looked at the situation and he figured out how he could translate the truth into something that somebody else could understand. Talking to a Jew, he spoke in Jewish traditional language. Speaking to a Gentile, he spoke in a way that they would understand. Somebody who was weak, he spoke in a way that they could understand. And that is exactly what we need to do. If we hope to go out into a culture that very easily will view us as backward and ignorant and wrong, we need to understand how to approach them. And that's, I guess, what I'm hoping that this lesson will help us do in some way. So our associations are alien. They're very foreign to the world, and that makes sense. Jesus was foreign to those in his life. We will be foreign to those in ours. But we are also baggage bearers. There's the beat. We're baggage bearers. Now you know, when you've been at the airport, probably not a lot of us have gone to the airport recently, but if you've been at the airport, you see people, if you just people watch like I love to do, You'll see them with all kinds of different baggage. Now, I'm the kind of person who, if I can fit all of my luggage into a small, you know, maybe Bible size, I would love to take something that was like this size on a trip. Contrast that with my mother. (laughs) I'm not sure there's enough bags in her house to carry some of the things that she wants to take with her on a trip. And so that's the difference. There's people in our lives who have a different level of baggage. And by the way, you have baggage, I have baggage, everybody has baggage. And people in the world have baggage that is sometimes messier than other people's baggage. But we are are ones who bear that baggage. And, And really the question, I think, is how much is too much? How much baggage is too much for you to bear. I think a lot of times when we think about evangelism, wouldn't it be nice if we could always find somebody who was like Cornelius to preach to? I mean, come on! He was almost, if you could consider himself as godly a person who wasn't in Christ, as maybe could have existed. Cornelius was somebody who we would love to run across. Somebody who was Diligently seeking the Lord and finding out what needed to be done. He was teaching to his family. He was gathering people together. He was praying to God even though he was not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of us would love to find and stumble across a Cornelius. Cornelius didn't have a lot of baggage. But a lot of people in this world do. And we will, more than we care to, to admit, we will run across people who have entanglements that have wrapped them so tightly that repentance is going to take a lot of work. Repentance is going to take a change of mindset, it's going to take a change of lifestyle, it's going to take a change of friendships. You can't think about those in the, for example, LGBTQ community and not see that that's going to take a big change when they come to the Lord. You can't see people who are steeped in addiction to alcohol or to substances that that's not going to take a lot for them to get over. People have baggage, and Jesus dealt with somebody who had quite a bit of baggage. Maybe maybe not one of those capital S sins. By the way, just so everybody's clear, All sin is sin, and it doesn't matter what your struggles are. It's all baggage to overcome, and I know sometimes we like to elevate one sin over another and think that one thing is really important over another, but it's absolutely not. We all have things to get over, and Jesus dealt with a young man who had a lot to get over in Matthew 19, that rich man who was earnestly asking him, what do I need to do and finally, Jesus boils it down to the point where he says, sell all your possessions, give your proceeds to the poor. And what does he do? He goes away sorrowful. You can't imagine a scenario in which he would sell everything that he had. That baggage was too much to let go of for him. And there will be people, when we go out into the world, who have so much baggage that they will not be able to let it go. But if you're in 1 Corinthians, where we were a minute ago, in verse chapter 6, verse 9, understand that even the Lord's people had baggage. The church in Corinth was steeped in things that they were struggling to get over, and Paul acknowledges that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, "...or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. When you go out into the world and offer to carry the messy baggage of somebody's life, deal with the issues that they're going through, you were no better before you came to the Lord. Such were some of you. And you may not be able to sympathize one-to-one with the exact issues that somebody in the world is dealing with, but you've been there. You've been there. So how much is too much? I guess that's kind of a hyperbolic question. I don't think there is too much. Because God and his power can change anyone. If he could change the Apostle Paul, who was a former persecutor of the church, into somebody who was a, a staunch advocate of the church, he can change anyone. And let's, let's be clear here. There is a tendency sometimes to attack the elephant in the room when we deal with people, when we start dealing with their baggage and their messy lives. Let's not stop at their sin. I know we like to think that somebody's sin, somebody's difficulty that they're going through is the absolute number one thing to focus on, but I don't think it is. And I know that because when we look at Jesus' example from John chapter four and his conversation with the Samaritan woman, maybe this would be a good passage to just go read. Verse four through 42, the whole conversation there between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is just beautiful. It's a beautiful example of a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman, shocking, absolutely culturally shocking. A man alone with a woman, number one. A Jew alone with a Samaritan, number two. And Jesus communicating with her back and forth, back and forth, listening to her, answering her questions. The, the way that they speak to each other is just is so telling about how we should speak to the world today. But one of the things that comes up early in the conversation is her adultery. The Samaritan woman is also the adulterous woman, in case you never made that connection. Not the same adulterous woman that we would be addressed later on, but she was an adulterous woman. Go call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, you're right, Jesus says. You don't have a husband because you've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your husband. Now, Jesus could have very easily stopped right there. Now, let me tell you why adultery is wrong. And let me tell you why you are in sin because of your life choices. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do in his conversation with her? He moves right along to the most important thing to talk about which is, I am the living water. That's where he goes. He moves right along into the things she needs to understand. I'm the Messiah. I'm the chosen one. Believe in me. And then, knowing all the things that she knows, she goes, runs home to her town, comes back, brings all the people that, that she could find, and they all believe. Not because of her words, but because of his powerful words the influence that she is able to have on them could have been totally wiped out if Jesus lost the thread. Obviously, he wouldn't have. The master teacher knows exactly how to handle this situation. And he addresses her and her sin lightly, delicately, and then moves on to what she absolutely needs to hear. And we could take a good lesson in that. Paul also does the same thing, by the way. In in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, you know, one of the conversations throughout the Bible that comes up so often is idolatry. We talked about it there. Some, some of you in 1 Corinthians, some of you were idolaters. Idolatry comes up so much. But what happens when, when Paul goes to Athens and he finds this altar to the unknown God? And, and all of their pagan idol worship. He could have popped right in there and said, You ignorant idolaters! You have no idea what you're doing. Let me tell you why idolatry is a sin. He did absolutely not do that. What does he do? He uses it as an opportunity. He says, I see that you are very religious. He gives them credit. He connects with them on a personal level. And he says, let me me use this opportunity to tell you who the true God is. He doesn't stop at their sin. He moves on to the important point. Now, some didn't believe him, but some did. And he was able to have more influence on people because he moved past their sin to the thing that they really needed to hear. I think sometimes we get too wrapped up in trying to fight battles and win arguments and prove people wrong than we do on just sharing the gospel, just telling people who God is. You are never going to convert somebody, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but you are never going to convert somebody by winning an argument with them. You are going to convert them by giving them the truth about God. That is what will convert people. That is what will change people. Not winning an argument about their current baggage that they're holding. C, we have concerned conversations. Again, we're not going out to win an argument, we are going out and speaking to people because we are concerned, because we love them, because we, we want them to be saved. It would be like standing on the sidewalk and seeing somebody in the road about to get hit by a car and not being concerned enough to shout, get out of the road. But it's easy to just stand idly by and watch your neighbors and your coworkers and people that are in your life face certain destruction. But we need to care enough to persuade people. And in one of the best what not to do examples, Jonah is a great example of what not to do. In fact, he's very powerful in his message. Although he doesn't want to be in Nineveh preaching. He has one of the most powerful eight word sermons that probably has ever existed. As he walks through the city proclaiming that in 40 days they will be destroyed with only a short phrase that he uses throughout the city, 120,000 souls are saved. 120,000 people are saved. And you would think Jonah would be over the moon, but he is absolutely not. Jonah chapter 4 comes around and you see Jonah basically looking to God and saying, I knew you would save them. Your mercy and your love, I knew would cause you to relent from destroying them. Jonah was a very nationalistic kind of guy. These were the enemies. This would have been like going from America to Cold War Soviet Union back a long time ago. It was not something that Jonah wanted to do. And when they finally repented, when they fasted and threw up their hands and said, we need the true God, he said, I want to die. Why? Because he didn't concern himself with them. He didn't care about them. He didn't love them. He preached. God did the work of changing their hearts, and he just wanted to die. And in fact, God says to him, you care more about this plant than you do about 120,000 people who came to me. He said, they don't even know their left hand from their right. And as we look out into the world today, they are not the enemy. Your neighbor struggling in sin is not the enemy. They don't know their left hand from their right. And we need to go out and care enough to persuade them. And that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade people. We know and understand what will, what will happen to people if they don't come to the Lord. And so knowing that, we persuade people, come to the Lord because we care about them and we're concerned for their eternal souls. But know that your approach matters. It absolutely matters. And you can go on social media and you can blast people all day long. You can hold up the picket sign that says, you're all going to hell. Is that going to help? Is that going to do the job? Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, honor Christ in your hearts as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Remember that your approach matters. And when you love people, when you care about people enough, they're going to see it. They're going to see your gentleness. They're going to see your respect. They're going to see your good conscience. And as Paul would talk about in Colossians 4, verse 6, you will season your words with grace, taking every opportunity as a chance to share the gospel, making the most of every opportunity. Our words seasoned with gentleness and grace and respect. That's how we approach the world because we're concerned, and hopefully they will see that when we go out and tell them about Christ. The last thing, B. We are deity declares. I know sometimes when we think about evangelism, and this is my I'm pointing back at myself so much here, this whole lesson is really just stepping on my toes specifically. But I think sometimes we view the task of, of evangelism as this mammoth thing to overcome. But the task is really simple. If you break it down to its most basic, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, here is what our job is. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is the job? What is our main task? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. We go out into the world not to win an argument. We go out into the world to tell people about God and about his mercy and about how he changed me and how he changed you. And when you think about it from that perspective, the job is really simple. It's not about winning an argument. It's just about sharing God. It's about telling people who God is and why he should be served. And once people know about God, God will do the work. God will take care of the increase. It is, by the way, our obligation to all people, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1, a beautiful phrase that he uses here, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice his obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. He He had to speak. We sing that song, The World's Bible. We sing that song, and maybe the the implication there is you may be the only positive, godly influence that someone will ever run across. And if you are not obligated to speak, then you're hiding your light with a basket. And Jesus doesn't want us to do that. The apostles don't want you to do that. You shouldn't want yourself to do that. It's scary. It's fearful. There's uncertainty. You may very well be labeled as too extreme. But it's your obligation to people. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Get out there and speak it. Get out there and tell people about God. So those are the four points. Hopefully these things are helpful for you. I want to I wrap this thing up with just one verse. And I think Paul in 1 Corinthians does a great example does a great job of really just laying this all out here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the the familiar chapter where he's dealing with the sexually immoral brother, at the end of the chapter, he has something very pointed to say about the distinction between the world and the church. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You see how this verse fits into what we're talking about? Have nothing to do with these kinds of people. Not not people in the world, but people in the church who deal with these things. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil persons from among you. So the point I want you to walk away from this lesson thinking is that on one hand, we hold a very strong stance within the church about holiness and righteousness and avoiding sin at all costs. But when we go out into the world, we eat with tax collectors and sinners. We get into their messy lives, translating the language of God into something that they can understand, bearing their burdens, helping them deal with their sins, caring enough about them, loving them enough to get involved, and not trying to win an argument, but simply telling them about That's our job, and hopefully this week, you'll take that on and rise above self-isolation. Take out your songbooks, turn to the number that's been announced. Thanks for your patience. We're running up into our Bible class period here, and so I just want to encourage you, if there's anybody here who needs to respond to the gospel call, if you're not yet a believer, and you want to give your life to the Lord, you may have a lot of baggage to let go of, but if this lesson was any indication, we are happy to help you deal with that. We're happy to walk beside you and answer your questions and study with you and hold up your hands as you try to serve the Lord your best. If there's any other needs at this time, please come forward as we stand and sing